Hello and welcome to The Deal Room, where every Wednesday we talk specifically about all things corporate finance, from the biggest M&A and PE deals to the strategy that drives business decision making. We aim to bring what you learn in the classroom to life with real world examples and hopefully at the same time have some fun with it. So let's dive in. Hello and welcome back to The Deal Room and we have three hot topics for you up for discussion. First one is Goldman Sachs. We've just had their earnings hit the tape a short while ago and while things like EPS and revenue may have beat, Steve is going to unpack this one for us and talk a little bit more about what might be hidden under the bonnet here to make a bit more sense of the rationale of what exactly is going on at one of the premier investment banks. Then we're going to talk about Manchester United. We did talk about this a couple of episodes back. It's the ongoing saga. Where are we now? So there's definitely been some movement there, not only in the story, but in the share price of Man U. And then we're going to finish with Birkenflop. That's right. It's been an absolute disaster. But why has it been a disaster? We were all getting pretty hyped, perhaps even guilty, of getting a little bit too excited about what has been quite a steady stream, actually, of IPO action. But it's interesting to see now a few of these, as we've discussed before, have wobbled slightly. So Birkenstock, we're going to discuss as well. But Stephen, perhaps we could start with, with Goldman's then. Yeah, Goldman Sachs, everyone's favorite bank. Um, and uh, so I was just looking at a couple of quotes about the big bit of news that I want to talk about today. Um, some employees saying that it cannot happen fast enough. Other employees saying that it needed to happen sooner rather than later. Do you know what they're referring to? Any idea? Uh, probably him DJing. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the news. This is what I want to spend the next 45 minutes talking about. DJ Sol, if you haven't caught him, if you haven't caught him at Lollapalooza or any other high-flying American event, he's given it up. And probably rightly so. (laughs) Because the performance of Goldman Sachs probably quite nicely correlated, inversely correlated to the volume of DJing performances. Uh, the, volume, uh, the, the, the performance of Goldman Sachs has gone well south and DJ Sol has, you know, hung up his decks and has decided, probably rightly so, to focus on the business at hand. And the, and the business at hand is trying to unwind the consumer banking mess that Goldman Sachs has found itself in. As I said, employees say it cannot happen fast enough. And what they're actually referring to is getting out of consumer. We speak a lot uh, on the podcast and we speak a lot in our teaching about how global banks uh, tend to have three client types. The first is your retail client. The second is your corporate client or your company client. And the third is your investor client. And Goldman Sachs has traditionally been uh, its bread and butter has been the investing client through sales and trading revenue, and obviously the corporate client through their investment banking division. But they decided a few years ago with the launch of Mar- with the launch of Marcus and a number of other initiatives to get into the consumer market, consumer loans, consumer deposits, low level wealth management business, et cetera, et cetera. And what <laughs> it has turned out to be an unqualified disaster. 
from a revenue perspective, from a profitability perspective. Uh, estimates suggest that the consumer division has lost over $5 billion since 2020. Now, if you're a Goldman Sachs shareholder, and moreover, if you're a Goldman Sachs partner, because they, st they still operate a partner model uh, within the company, you know, you get a slice of the pie. If that pie is being eroded by $5 billion of cumulative losses in their consumer division, well, my gosh, there's going to be calls to get out and start focusing on what the company has historically done best. Can I just ask, why did the consumer venture go so badly wrong? Was it mismanaged? Was it mistimed? Did they overpay? Like, why was it so bad? Yeah, so there's, I think there's a number of explanations. I think getting in in 2019, before COVID and before the, kind of, before the disruption to domestic banking services had something to do with it. There's also this concept of specialization, and we all know it across basic business theory. Do what you're good at and keep doing it. HSBC is good at retail banking and it keeps, you know, we spoke about HSBC last, last week. HSBC should keep doing retail banking. Goldman Sachs trying to apply its slightly more um, alpha cutthroat approach to an industry that takes quite a lot of time to get off the ground and is a little bit slow and steady. Maybe not the right thing. It also, in order to get the scale that it needed to, it bought a couple of companies that it paid far, far too much for. And the one that is uh, the one that's kind of hitting the headlines or has hit the headlines over the last week, a company called GreenSky. Now, GreenSky is a lending platform, consumer lending platform for home improvements. Pretty run of the <laughs> pretty run of the mill type company. Goldman Sachs paid one point seven billion dollars only 18 months, two years ago for this company. And I can imagine that if you are, if you are a consumer lending platform and Goldman Sachs comes along, maybe there might be a, a Goldman Sachs premium, meaning that they end up paying more than another buyer might pay. And that might have in part resulted in some of these write downs. But as, as I said, the numbers are quite staggering. And if you look back through the last few quarters of Goldman Sachs uh, earnings, they've tried to basically hide losses, both loan losses and loan provisions uh, for loans that are underperforming or loans that are not going to be totally fulfilled, but also um, write downs and goodwill impairments, which is where effectively <laughs> what you bought doesn't turn out to be nearly as valuable as what you think you bought. They've been kind of putting this in over the last few quarters to the extent that there's probably been a five to $700 million earnings per share lag over the last three quarters as they try to unwind from this consumer business. So the pain is not totally over, but we're probably seeing maybe one or two more quarters of, of consumer pain uh, to be felt within Goldman Sachs. So, so as I listen to you talk about this, I just think, wow, so they've had their earnings today, and as you described, uh, impairments and, and write-downs and so forth. So your natural conclusion is, well, this is really bad, and therefore surely they've taken a big hit today. But they're down about 1%, which is a pretty 
um, unspectacular given the information we've just heard. I mean, there was even headlines saying their profit had slid 33%. I mean, that's a big number. Um, what were we talking about? Oh, it was HSBC China, wasn't it? Or something like that. It was up 20%. We were like, oh, that's pretty good for a, a monster company going into a big geographic area. Goldman's profit as a business is down a third, which is quite incredible. However, you know, have they just done a little bit of uh, earnings engineering here? They've built a pretty good foundation to go into this earnings call where they've just been literally uh, full disclosure. Everything is bad. Talk to the analysts as much as possible. Shift that bar down because a lot of the numbers were actually uh, beats even despite things like fixed income trading still being down percentage-wise. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think the the announcement of the deal with the Green Sky sale six days ago was a was a tactical announcement. It, if you sell a company that is under or a division within your organization that is underperforming, there is the expectation that, that that is going to come with a significant uh, write-down or a significant income statement hit or an earnings per share hit. So maybe we already knew that was coming. I think investors definitely knew that there were going to be some um, yeah, some losses related to the Green Sky loan portfolio and to the Green Sky sale. Uh, and, and if you look into the numbers, the biggest drag the biggest drag is is a a pre-tax loss of six hundred seven million dollars on five hundred one million dollars of revenue across their consumer division. The rest of the organization, you said fixed incomes down, you're right, but it, the rest of the organization has not had a particularly bad quarter. It's not been great, but it's not been bad. So I think if I was an investor, I'm like, all right, a couple more quarters of pain, get rid of consumer, and then at least Goldman Sachs can go back to being the organization that was quite attractive, but being the big beast that it was 36 months ago. So, so stepping out to conclude, stepping out of uh, the kind of headlights of today's information flow um, and just taking a much bigger view, this is positive news. I mean, the losses are getting smaller, but aside from that, the IPO market is starting to reopen. Interest rates looking forward are likely going to be sticky at high levels, but we're at the top and Obviously, there's other macro risks like geopolitics and things like that ongoing right now, which could destabilize things. But there was a number of things that were looking like they were improving. Yeah, absolutely. And and let, let's say that the the M and A market or the you know the deal we were talking about that race to three trillion earlier on. If that continues to recover, the IPO market continues to creep open. And actually, importantly, from a Goldman Sachs perspective, their assets under management in their asset management division continues to rise. It was up at $2.7 trillion, generated $2.4 billion of fee revenue alone, off of revenue of $11.8 billion. So their asset management division, which is lovely, stable, non-volatile revenue, yeah, that's a good, if I'm an investor, I'm thinking that's good. Keep piling into that. And I'm very, very happy. I think it, it, it's a really interesting, is, it, is this a good thing that the Goldman Sachs management have done, you know, to accept that this was a failure and to get out and get and stop the bleeding pretty quickly. Now, should we applaud DJ Sol 
and his cohort for getting out quickly? Or should this actually, is this just a representation of uh, mismanagement, maybe not the not the not good enough people at the very very highest positions and this just looks like flip-flopping and and how as a shareholder can i trust you as a management team because you were all bullish a couple of years ago and now you're selling off at a massive loss so that's the question that's probably going on in the minds of, of quite a few shareholders at the moment cool all right well look, let's move on and let's talk a little man united so i'm not completely up to speed with this deal so you're going to have to uh, fill in the gaps for everyone yeah absolutely so manchester united we we spoke about man united probably three or four months ago uh, when we were first launching this podcast and we tried to do a breakdown of valuation and who owned what and 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 all of that kind of thing but the long story long story short manchester united is currently owned by the glazer family um, with a small percentage listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And there has been rumbling speculation for the last year. In fact, there's been a formal process to see whether they can sell, whether the Glazers can sell Manchester United. Now, everyone was quite excited about a 100% sale, uh, more specifically a 100% sale to the Qataris who own Paris Saint-Germain. And there was this hope, I think, from the Manchester United faithful that a 100%, a £6 billion, 100% takeover would see the company uh, be restored to its former glory, let's say. Um, a stadium would be um, redeveloped because I think it's looking pretty old and decrepit. They might be able to buy some better players and, and maybe... Uh, change the kind of backroom staff and and all of the things that they think is going wrong with the with the club at the moment. By the way, the Manchester United are languishing in tenth position in the Premier League at the moment. I was just having a a quick look, so I can see um, the mighty seagulls. Brighton are sixth, and in Crystal Palace are ninth. There you go. I mean, Nottingham Forest, my team, who were down in League One, the third tier. Uh, a few years ago, they're only a couple of places behind Man United. 13, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so look, you know, we're all catching up with Man United. And I think if I was a fan, uh, obviously, I would be very disgruntled about the way the last 10 or 15 years has gone. But the news story uh, over the last few days is that the Qataris dropped out over the weekend, which a lot of the fans were pretty gutted about. They wanted this big injection of cash and they wanted the Glazers out, fully out, because they, <laughs> they believe the company's been and the club's been very mismanaged. Shares dropped as much as 13% on the announcement of the Qataris withdrawing from the deal. But that has opened the door, again, we discussed this a few months ago, that has opened the door to Jim Radcliffe, the British billionaire, founder and CEO of the petrochemicals group Ineos, coming in. He's always been there or thereabouts. He tabled a lower 100% offer earlier on this year that got rejected because it didn't hit the £6 billion valuation. He's come in and said, look, I want to buy one point, I want to buy a 25% stake for £1.4 billion, which values the club just under £5 billion. Still not, still not insignificant, well above what it's valued at in the market at the moment on the New York Stock Exchange. So to an extent, that's good. The other interesting point here is that as part of the deal, the 25% ownership, Radcliffe and his um, sports consortium or his kind of sporting management group 
um, is going to take control of the on the pitch management of the company. So the Glazers are kind of going to take an even further back step, which should hopefully appease some of the fans because Radcliffe is known for being a relatively sensible owner of sports franchises, including Nice in, in France. So this is an interesting one. And again, the speculation is that 25% is just the start. This may well become a creeping takeover. And this is something that happens quite often. A potential buyer takes a minority stake, maybe gets a seat on the board, takes a bigger stake, gets to a stage that they have to make a formal offer for the company due to merger, uh, due to acquisition and merger laws. Um, and this is this might be what happens. So it's a really interesting saga. Um, fans don't like it, as I said, but it might end up being the best thing for Manchester United in the long run. So j just for any Man United fans, then, how long are they going to have to wait? So let's say Jim does a creep. How far does he have to creep before he can then have some influence? Or is it at that 25% stake he can, as you say, move the pieces around in the boardroom so that he's yeah. strategically making football decisions? Well, absolutely. So I think he's already going to have a good influence or a big influence on the club. I don't know whether it's going to be a good influence or not. There are takeover rules. Um, usually you have to, depending on the code, um, you either have to have over 90% over ownership to kind of squeeze the remainder shareholders out, or in some instances, it can be much lower than that. In order to be able to, in order to mandate the force, in order to mandate an offer for a, for an entire company, so we'll see where this goes. Radcliffe doesn't need to own 100% of the business to be the uh, de facto owner of the of the organisation. So uh, this this feels like significant stakes in the ground. 1.4 billion. That's not that's not chump change. So. This again, this this could be good news. Jim Ratcliffe said that he's been a lifelong Manchester United fan, but we also know that a year ago he tried to buy Chelsea. So how how red how red does he bleed? I'm not sure. Oh dear. <laughs> All right, and then Birkenstock. There's been quite a lot of um, it's been somewhat uh, symbolic almost. I feel like the sentiment has slightly shifted on this one reading a lot of the press throughout the last couple of days, they were kind of talking about how potentially a little bit caught up with what looked like green shoots growing. And Birkenstock was kind of one of those where I saw comments about the business, that people within the management team saying the business hasn't really actually changed a great deal. Um, and then obviously we talked about the hype cycle of it being a fashion uh, product and it got caught up and wound up into that whole uh, Barbie movie situation. But yeah, what's your what's your take on what's been going on in their share price? Yeah, I think there's two things to to discuss here. The first is valuation, and the second maybe is process. So we'll take valuation first. I'm just thinking back to my days when I was uh, when I was at the bank and I was looking at uh, valuations. So I was doing a lot of um, EV enterprise value over revenue or over EBITDA earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortizations multiples to understand the relationship much like a price earnings the relationship between the value of the company and and how much revenue it was generating and before before the tech boom of of 
you know, 2018 to 2022, a non-tech company would expect to see a enterprise value over revenue. So the enterprise value, the total value of the company over its last 12 month revenue, depending on the industry of anywhere between one times, if it was not valued particularly well in the market, maybe it was a really boring utilities firm, super stable, not much growth, up to maybe two and a half, three times if it was a slightly more attractive proposition. But we've got used, and we've spoke about it with Arm, we spoke about it with Instacart, we've got used to these multiples of enterprise value price over sales, enterprise value over revenue of six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, which suggests really significant future growth in the company. You're only going to put a price on a business of six or seven or eight or nine <laughs> times revenue if that business is going to continue to grow really fast 20 percent, 30 percent, 40 percent every single year because you're buying the future growth of the company now we all got a little bit carried away with birkenstock because its revenue was up 20 percent last year but birkenstock if i was sat back in 2012 at the bank i'd be thinking pretty boring traditional shoe <laughs> shoe manufacturer growth is going to be okay, but maybe high single digits, low double digits. My peer group, if I was to analyze the peer group of other shoe manufacturers, they're trading at about two times enterprise value over revenue, a very conservative, very stable valuation. So, so the, uh, the IPO priced at $46 a share, the kind of midpoint within that IPO range of 44 to 49. This valued company at about six times enterprise value over revenue. In fact, maybe even more when it, when it comes to trailing 12 months, so about 6.5 times. So that is a tech valuation. Let's just be clear about that. We, you know, <laughs> and, and I think that investors saw right through it. They thought this is a really good company, but is it worth six and a half times its sales? Probably not. And that's part of the reason why it closed down 12.6% on the day and is, is, is off about 17% now. It was just value too high. So, so who, who comes out of this situation better? Does the, do the bankers, is it like short-term gain, long-term pain? Like you get your fees in because of the size of the transaction, but then reputationally, you've kind of misjudged it a little bit or... Is it a case of the company itself achieved a high valuation, which allowed them to then acquire funds to then pay off debt or redeploy and so on? Is it a bad thing that it's come off that much? I mean, does it now just reflect what it should reflect? It's it's a really interesting question, and there's there's lots of different ways to approach this. I think from a bank's perspective, good that they got fees, bad that the IPO was not successful in part due to reputation, but also in part due to this green shoe option that we've spoken about previously, where you have the over allocation option to basically profit from a, uh, an uptick in the price after launch. So kind of good and bad for banks. You would say good for Birkenstock in the first instance, because they've raised a bunch of money for the company. Um, and they've you know, and El Catterton, the owners have, have 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 realized some form of a partial exit. But then maybe bad because 
<laughs> there's a lot of bad news stories and maybe there's tie up periods and lock up periods where you, you're not going to be able to sell your shares until two months or three months or six months into the IPO and the share price is going to be significantly off at $46. And then I think the third class of uh, stakeholder here is the anchor investors. We spoke about this a few weeks ago and it seems like every IPO has got anchor investors that are taking up a percentage of the ticket in order to uh, reassure other investors coming in later on. Now, anchor investors don't necessarily have a lockup period. So what they can do is they can sell straight away. They can sell at that 46, they can sell at that 45, whatever, whatever the number is. And that might be the reason why some of these IPOs are coming off so significantly, because once the market, you know, once we're in the market, maybe these anchor investors who got a nice deal on getting involved just sell straight away and the liquidity is not there so they've probably done very well again who is the sucker at the end of it <laughs> retail investors maybe um some institutional investors or maybe the institutional investors are holding it for the very long term and don't mind about this short-term blip so yeah as as with all of these things it's very complicated depending on where you sit and what your time frame is this is this is certainly a note of caution for the ipo market and there are a couple of other ipos that were that were that were lined up um so planisware the french software company and rank ag the military gearbox maker both postponed their ipos because this was not a successful ipo so it does suggest that in the short term, the IPO market, it's open, but only for the right company and at the right price. So something like the Exxon deal with Pioneer, that's just a different ball game. Not talking size, but we, but industry. Would that be the right? And the, the fundamentals of the transaction are different compared to, say, getting caught up in this kind of hype cycle. Yeah, it's it's yeah. So the so the pioneer resources uh, transaction, the the fifty six plus billion dollar transaction that we spoke about last week. That if you look at the fundamentals in terms of the multiples that 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 Exxon are acquiring for, this is just good boring business. There is not a massive hype cycle. If you read the front page here, we all look at Reuters and Bloomberg deals and and this kind of thing and very rarely it's what it was it's going to be the biggest deal of the year but it's not going to feature as prominently as Birkenstock or Instacart or Manchester United <laughs> or some of the names that we get quite interested in so Birkenstock is a is a, is an interesting and cautionary tale of a company that probably should be more boring than we think it is <laughs> getting hyped up and then and then and then overpriced Stephen Sandals are sandals, I'm afraid. I know you own three of them. I know you tried to to help do your part to help Birkenstock, but yeah, they're just sandals. <laughs> yeah, and slippers. Don't forget the slippers. I'm wearing them right now. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, look, we'll wrap it up there. A good, uh, great episode. Nice and to the point. So yeah, any questions or comments, please just do feel free to send it into us on our social media feeds. And yeah, see you next time. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you, Anne.